So, Dan, you hey. said food-related item? I do have a food-related item. Yep. Do you want to hear it now? Yeah. I don't see why we wouldn't talk about there, it there's first. Nothing else you want to talk about nothing first? Nothing else. Okay. N- nothing else going on. Nothing else going on. Okay. So this was very exciting. Yes. This is one of those things that I kind of mentally categorize as the stupidest news I've ever heard. Okay. One it of it's, it's in it's the running. It's not, but it's in that category okay. of this is right. This is here because people are dumb. Top one percent of stupid news stories. Maybe not making the yeah. top ten, but so uh, this is not a food heist. Okay. Though it is a food crime. We have expanded on how we yeah, define it. Our interests into all food-related crime. Of yeah, we, we've done some brand extension. Yes. Yes. So I do that every time I eat a bag of chips. <laughs> There is a TikTok trend. Uh huh. So this is already dumb, where people take scoops of ice cream yep. and wrap fruit roll-ups around them and then freeze them. Okay. And I, honestly, that sounds delicious, right? Sounds too much sugar for me, but I can understand how exactly. someone would enjoy it. Too much sugar, too much yeah. dairy. I would not eat it. But kids these days, kids these days, they're gonna love it. Like things that taste good, and they Imagine do that. love it. They love it so much mm-hmm. that in many countries, including for the purposes of this story, Israel, have a massive nationwide fruit roll-up shortage. Ooh! And so there was a guy, an American dude, who was caught entering mm-hmm. Israel with 650 pounds of fruit roll-ups in his luggage. Okay. And okay. They 650 were like, pounds yeah. of fruit which, which is apparently enough that they were like, you're here to sell this. And he's like, no, I'm just bringing this to my family. And they're like, how come there's no clothing in your suitcases? And he's like, well, because I've got clothing here but in he's, Israel. He's like, going to wear the fruit roll-ups. He's going to wrap it around yeah, himself. Yeah, you could, you've seen the duct tape. As suits. if he were ice cream. Yeah. Seems like a very trustworthy individual. Yeah. So that's why I say... Kind of a food crime. It might not be, depending on if you trust this guy or not. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, this he is... He might be an yeah. enterprising fruit roll-up smuggler. Might be. Brought about by a TikTok trend. Might be a tailor with just some very unique fashion sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there's any number of directions this yes, could go. Yes, yes. Yeah, obviously. It, it might be. just be a guy who's visiting family and he wants to bring him some fruit roll-ups. Yep. And he has a lot of family. Yeah. You're going to give one fruit roll up to every grandkid, and you know, mm-hmm. that adds up. That adds up. Fruit so, roll ups yeah. are one of the things that I sold when I was in middle school. I told you this story. I don't remember hearing this story. You when sold I was in fruit middle school, yeah. I, oh, no, it was fruit by the foot. It wasn't fruit roll ups. Oh, okay. Yeah, different, different thing. Yeah, because I, I bought. As far uh, as I'm aware, fruit by the foot is still readily accessible in Israel. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a little harder. Yeah, fruit by the foot. When I was in middle school, I sold it between classes, you know. Okay. To, to make a little extra yeah. and got in trouble. It was that and it was bubble tape. Mm-hmm. Anything I could measure for a foot and I'd sell it for, you know, you get six feet in a little roll. Yeah. And I'd sell one foot and I'd sell it for like a quarter and I'd, you know, buy them for a dollar and I'd make 50 cents on each one. Hey, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Economy at work. Yep, yep. Until the uh, full uh, governmental uh, interference as well, because after doing this for a week and getting very popular and making Mm -hmm. quite a lot of money for a seventh grader, selling things on school property was banned unless it's a school fundraiser. Oh. Specifically targeting just me. Man, regulation. Regulation. Always keeping down the little guy. Yep. 
stomping yeah. out small business owners. Yep. I love that that started your lifelong journey to becoming a corporate cog. I don't know. What what what, what do we what do you become? You could say entrepreneur. I know, but I was specifically going for like something that rolls. Yeah. You were not a like you have become a creative person who happens to also be a successful business person. Well, you know me in video games and role playing, I'm always looking for Yeah. what is the confluence of rules that allows me to maybe eke out just a little bit of an extra advantage for my character? <laughs> I was just doing that in real life. Yeah, and... just min-maxing your mm -hmm. fruit by the foot. That's right. That's right. That's awesome. So, is there so, anything else anything that you want to want to mention? Oh, is this my honorary PhD sitting in front of us? Oh, is that oh, what that is? Oh, it is my honorary PhD. An honorary PhD. Yes. Honorary PhD from Utah Valley University. That is a big old thing. Big old thing. Yeah. A PhD in what? Letters. Letters. Yes, yes. I know all the letters. They're, That's impressive. I know every one of those. Every letters. letter. Every letter. Every so. letter in the Western English alphabet. Yep. There it is. The honorary doctorate. Doctorate of letters. Doctorate of letters. Has cool. a shiny seal. You keep working hard. Yeah. And you're going to get an honorary doctorate in shapes. Oh, man. Maybe colors. Maybe. Is that too much? I mean, yeah. I can't see very many colors. Yeah. I'm not colorblind, but I can't see colors very well. Mm. So I, that one's out of my reach. I'd like to think that I could eventually do shapes and letters. <laughs> so... I am obviously very honored. You don't usually go by actual doctor when you have an honorary PhD. Mm -hmm. It is an award, not a doctorate. But it is very cool that they gave that to me. So can I call you? Because you, I know you yeah. won't call yourself Dr. Sanderson. Yeah. Can I call you Dr. Sanderson? Uh, I think honorary Dr. Sanderson. Honorary Dr. Sanderson. Or imaginary Dr. Sanderson. So is that the new title of this podcast? Honorary Dr. Sanderson and his little friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And the guy on his coattails. <laughs> and the food heist expert. The food heist connoisseur. You could have a doctorate in food heist, right? Man, if do they give honorary doctorates in food heists? We can give you one. Awesome. Doctor? <laughs> can you give me one right now? Yes, of course I can. Awesome. Look, look. Honorary. Oh, wait, this might be an important thing. What's the name? Thing. <laughs> this is an important thing. I don't know. Nope, this is an important thing. Sweet. Doctor. It's written on the back of like a contract. It's, uh, it's some stuff from my school <laughs> in food high. So then it's an official school document yes. that's being repurposed. Yeah, I have an honorary Dan doctorate to... from a local elementary school. Hey, Dan. Here's a seal. It's got, it's not gnocchi on it. Is it an elephant seal? Now it is. Yes. Uh, that's not how you draw an elephant, Brandon. Floppy ears. Floppy ears. So, there. It's an elephant with gnocchi tattooed okay. on their face. Uh, given to Dan. Wells, congrats. All right. And I sign it. So, there you go. Oh, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. My honorary doctorate. In food heists. In food heists. I'm not trying to make light. Of the great distinction yes. that oh, they no. have given me. Yes, uh, we should definitely make clear yes. that that is a great honor. It is. You gave the commencement speech I did. yesterday. Utah Valley University. 
fantastic university. And I was peripherally involved in that as well. They filmed yes, me. They did. Saying nice things about you. You said very nice things about me, which yeah. I appreciate, which was broadcast to 5,000 students sitting there who were <laughs> hoping to get on with it and that the speeches would end quickly. Yeah. Though they were all very nice. Speaking of science fiction commencement yeah. speakers, do you know who spoke at my wife's college graduation? All right. Science fiction. Science fiction. Salt Lake. BYU. BYU. Science fiction. 1999. 1999. Is it Scott? It was Madeline Lengel. Oh, really? Yeah. Whoa. Now that's cool. One of my favorite authors spoke at my wife's graduation. Mm. And one of her favorite professional educator people spoke at my graduation. We got the lines crossed. I can't even remember his name mm -hmm. because... I'm not an education major. Yeah. She absolutely nerded out over it because she was an education major. So did they give Madeline Langle an honorary doctorate? Was she already a doctor? I assume she, she already, already is. A doctor. I, I don't think every commencement speaker gets an honorary doctorate. That yeah. is a special distinction given only to the finest purveyors the finest. of quality, quality commencement, commencement speeches. speeches. <laughs> they can actually watch it. They recorded it. It's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, we might stick it on my channel. I can't remember what the discussion was, but they did record it. And I saw it on the Brandon Sanderson subreddit posted. So Okay, so here's it. my very important question about mm -hmm. your commencement speech. Because yes. I, being the very good friend that I am, yes. did not actually go and listen to well, your I mean, obviously, <laughs> I didn't go to my own commencement. <laughs> so I understand. My parents came to this one mm -hmm. because it's the closest they got to watch Getting me. to see you. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you sent the commencement speech to several of us yes. to get feedback. Yeah. And I could not get my email program to send it in a response to the thread. So I sent it separately. Yes. Did you actually get it? I did. Okay. You made several of the same comments that Peter did. And I, I assumed that Peter was going to catch everything. Of those tweaks that you suggested. Yay. Mm -hmm. When you sent it, you specifically said that you thought it was in pretty good shape already, mm -hmm. but you just want to make sure that you didn't accidentally say something that you shouldn't say. And yeah, so something insensitive. My or, intention yeah. as I went through it was to mark on the sidelines and comments, this would be a really good place to insert an off-color joke. And that would yeah. be the only comment yep. that I was going to yeah. make. Uh -huh. And then it was like a really good speech and I didn't, but you didn't don't make any jokes about it. see colors very well. You just express this. So I don't know how you would even know <laughs> what is off-color. That is why you do not have your PhD in colors. I know, because yeah. I don't know what's an off-color and what's an on-color. Yep, yeah. So... Well, it was it was really nice. Yeah. I enjoyed it. You know, UVU is a great school. I recommend that everyone look into it. They have a fantastic president. President Tumenez is really cool. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed seeing her and her family. And they actually gave us a gift, which we're going to show on the podcast next week. Ooh. So. I am excited. You can anticipate that because they are listeners of the podcast. That's amazing. Yes. Then we should Jimenez's be even more complimentary than we already yes. are. No, genuinely and without, mm -hmm. now that we've just said that this is fake, this is not fake. It I, is, I it love is, UVU. It is not a real PhD. It is a real award. Yes. Right? And um, a very- uh, Well, I, I mean, my praise of the school yeah. is not fake. No, UVU my... has absolutely exploded. It is- the largest student body in the state, which is saying a lot because we mm -hmm. have two other really incredible huge schools and a bunch of other smaller schools. The one thing UVU does that I like a lot is you are more likely there than at our other universities in the area to have a teacher who has been a professional in their field 
rather than merely an academic. And yep. merely is an insulting word to use, and I apologize because academia is in itself incredibly useful and awesome. But I think that there's a nice balance to be set, and UVU does a really good job of that. Yeah, I would say our careers were partially made by BYU bringing in a writer yeah. who was a professional writer. professional writer. And it's the only class I took my entire career at university from someone who... There was one other. There was okay. um, there was one YA author. I'm trying to remember her name. My name is Susan. The Five is Silent. I don't know Look up. who that is. My name is Susan. The Five is Silent. She's a great teacher. She retired right after I took her class. And she said, it's because I had just sold a book. It was in my grad school. She's like, why am I not spending all of my time writing more of my books? And so she retired. <laughs> from retired teaching. from teaching from so teaching she could write, so more, she could more, books. write more books. Okay. Yeah. She's like, I have passed the torch to you. Yes. So I did take one during my grad student who wrote YA in middle grade. But during my undergraduate, the only class I took was Dave's. And it was foundational. Part of my speech was about how relevant that practical advice is. And yeah. I do think that's something we could stand to have a little bit more of, particularly in creative writing and mm -hmm. other academic programs. And indeed, I think BYU agrees because several of their hires after our generation there were people who had careers in publishing. Yeah. So they, I think, also agreed and made that happen. Yeah. Did you find it? Louise Plummer. Louise yeah. Plummer. Oh, Louise I know Plummer. her. Yep. Okay. That's fantastic. I can't remember the other important thing I was going to say. Well, I'm sure it, it will was come up. You really are- really good. You I do, do have an honorary doctorate yes. in food heist science. Yes. Speaking of which, mm. do you want to hear another- food. This isn't even a food crime as far as I know. Is this the food oddity we mentioned this before? This is a food oddity. I want to, yes, you mentioned the title to me or I mentioned, we, we, yeah, but I don't so know we, anything about yeah, it. You, you mentioned this to me and was like, okay. hey, did you hear about this? And I have, because several people have sent it to me. A few days ago in mm -hmm. New Jersey, several hundred, if not several thousand pounds of pasta were found dumped in a river. In a river, that's what it was, huh? It was dumped in a river. Yeah, because I, I remember I glanced at the headline and said, have you heard of this? And you're like, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Brandon, I I am a PhD candidate <laughs> in I food. I take this very yeah. seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do study in my field as much as I possibly can. Yeah. The kind of local mayor of whatever New Jersey town this was, I read an article where they interviewed her, and it was mostly just pasta puns. So Smart. it was yeah. not yeah. filled with like actionable intel, but it was entertaining nonetheless. Mm -hmm. The main question that remains, aside from who did this, where did it come from, they didn't actually know for sure if it had been boiled first and then dumped, or if it had just hydrated naturally in the river. Can it do that? Can pasta, if you're not boiling it, does it? I don't know. I guess. I trust the mayor of this New Jersey town Yeah, I to suspect... Know. That in the area of, you know, pasta crime scene investigation, shall we say? What are the people who study dead bodies? Forensic scientists? Yes. Yeah. Pasta forensics. When it comes to pasta river forensics. I'm going to guess that pasta boiled properly and then dumped in the river and mm -hmm. pasta just dumped in the river. Maybe they won't ever hydrate the same, but several days later decomposition of the corpses is going to look very similar. And so it's hard to tell. It, yeah, yeah, it is going to like, I'm yeah. sure they have a corpse farm somewhere yes, for, yes, pasta. for pasta. 
where you can study you know what it's going to look like at different stages of river-based hydration i mean i think this is a food-related crime in more ways than you think because okay. this is obviously some sort of portal to the pasta dimension where people are pasta and <laughs> they have found a way to dispose of the bodies so this is a mass grave yeah i like how that sentence started adorable and became horrific just in like six words. Just like you. Portal from the pasta dimension. Oh, that sounds so neat and cute. Oh, wait, this is a mass grave of dead pasta people. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, it seems really obvious to me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how, how they missed it. Yeah. This is, this so, is what's got to be happening. I'm, I'm not going to say that we're going to cross a picket line or anything, but mm -hmm. if anyone in Hollywood is currently yeah. looking for some really fantastic writing, we've got a story about... The yeah. adorable pasta dimension mass grave. Once the writer's strike is over, mm -hmm. at that point, you may come to us. And, yes. you know, we, we, we've we got some saved up. In fact, next week we'll be talking about, about some of our most some of our most, marketable ideas. Yes, yes. And we'll be introducing our bracket. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the writer's strike? So... Having worked tangential to Hollywood quite a bit and more and more closely in the recent years, I see how poorly writers are treated mm -hmm. and I fully support and stand with the Writers Guild. I wish yeah. they could argue for some of the things that will make the shows that we watch better. Certainly the writers getting paid better and having good livelihoods will help with mm -hmm. that. And so I 100% support that. But I read some things online. They're like, well, the writers of this show and this show and this show don't deserve a raise. And I'm like, yes, well, they do. number one, they do. Number two, even if you didn't like the shows, they deserve a raise, right? Mm -hmm. It is very hard to write these sorts of things. Number two, the more I get involved in Hollywood, the less I blame the writers. How yeah. about that? The more the system itself and uh, certain other individuals are to blame for each and every experience I've seen where yeah. the narrative doesn't come together. It's a fundamental, I mean, we're laughing. It's a fundamental problem in Hollywood, not respecting the importance of the narrative. Yeah. Putting it so low down that you don't end up with yeah. a good one. I have recommended this before, but if you are... Following news of the writer's strike and you were all interested in what that process looks like, please go watch a movie called The TV Set mm -hmm. with David Duchovny, Sigourney Weaver. It shows how the machine of public entertainment grinds down and destroys writing and in many cases also art and originality. It's mm -hmm. depressing, but it's very entertaining and incredibly informative and shockingly true. I wish we didn't need some of the strict rules the Writers Guild has had to put into place in order to protect its members. I understand why they're there, and it's not their fault that they have to be there, but there are a bunch of rules that mm -hmm. are a little frustrating. Yeah. But, you know, blaming the Writers Guild for these rules is putting the blame in the wrong place. Yeah. They should not need to have they shouldn't these need rules. to have the rules. The thing yeah. is, writers in Hollywood, writers who work yep. with the WGA, mm -hmm. over the last 10 years... Well, most wages have remained stagnant, which is already a problem. Hollywood writing wages have actually decreased by almost 23%. Yeah, and a lot of that is due to the fact that everything's moved to streaming. And mm -hmm. they're finding certain ways. So in the past, what would happen is you would write a show. 
The show would be successful. They would go put it into syndication. It would run in syndication. And a lot of the good money you made as a writer was when your show was in syndication and the episodes you'd worked on played, money would flow through. We pay yeah. for that syndication. So advertisers pay to advertise in that syndicated show. Then a chunk of that goes to whoever made the show. And that gets split up among the people who were involved in making the show. Problem is now in streaming, that doesn't happen. You get a chunk of money up front, and then they continue to play the show forever, and the residual question becomes a big, mm -hmm. what's happening? Yeah. Where's the money? And if you're not going to make residuals, well, then you should make more up front because a lot of the ways that they make sure writers are paid is through these residuals. And so it is definitely important things they are fighting for. Yeah. Well, and this is a broader issue as well. This mm -hmm. came to light last year, I think, or the year yeah. before. The same thing happened to Scarlett Johansson yep. uh, because of the contract she had for the Black Widow movie. Yeah. She lost several million dollars because it was released as a streaming feature rather mm -hmm. than a feature in theaters. And that same thing is happening to everybody. And if they'll do it to Scarlett Johansson, imagine what they're doing to some no-name schlub who sits in a writer's room. Yep. So. Yeah, there are some tricky things to work out, right? Like if the model changes, how then it, it happened in our industry, if the model changes to digital, then how do we figure out the compensation? And the unfortunate truth is, our industry is another example of this, when new something new happens, then the the people at the top in the corporate structure take this opportunity to make the contracts worse and then force mm -hmm. us to spend a century arguing to get them back to where they were. I mean, yeah. in publishing fiction, we earn less per download in general than the publisher does. Let me explain that a different way. Okay. So in a print book comes out and there's a certain percent that goes to the publisher and a certain percent that goes to the author and a certain percent that goes to the retailer and things like that. When we move to digital, the publishers are saying, oh, the world's going to end. Everyone's going to get a worse deal. We're sorry. These books are so cheap. And they cut deals with everybody. And then when we actually ran the numbers, the amount they made goes up and the amount we made went down. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's more money to play with with a digital download because of that. And you know things like that. Every time a new, yeah. I don't know even what to call it, a new, uh, a new technology, yeah, a, a disruption a, a, in the just, industry. Yeah happens. I think these are generally good things overall. I'm glad that digital exists. It's so much easier for a lot of readers. We want to be serving the readers. And so we say yes to these contracts. But of course, then we have to spend years clawing back to recover the lost ground that happens yeah. every time this happens. And it's happening with the WGA right now. And I wish it's them Wish them the best. Uh, I've got best. friends, Margaret Dunlap, who you yep. and I have both podcasted with extensively mm -hmm. on Writing Excuses. She's a writer. She's working on some big shows mm -hmm. and she's picketing right now. All the support there. Yeah. Do you think, I am curious, Uh huh. do you think that a WGA type organization could work for publishing? So I've thought about this a lot. I wish one could. I'm not convinced that one can. Yeah, there's a couple of reasons for this. So it's changing a little recently, but until recently, and even still kind of, to work in film and television, you basically need to be in LA mm -hmm. part of the year, right? That's just how it is, how that industry is. 
New York, very few as a percentage of writers live in New York where publishing is. Mm -hmm. And why is this relevant? Well, one of the big important things that a guild like this can offer is healthcare. And the way that American healthcare, we do not have time to go into all the ways it is broken. Yeah. But one of the things about it is you need to negotiate directly for state, sometimes for city and county because of all the rules and regulations. So the WGA can be like, here is our healthcare. We've negotiated it with this specific place. And 90% of our members live in this area. And so it can work. And mm -hmm. say, take Science Fiction Writers Association of America. They really tried this. They tried it for years. But everything changes so fast in healthcare. Like you get a deal negotiated for Utah. There's three authors on it. And then suddenly the rules change and the deal needs to be negotiated or someone company goes under and you mm -hmm. just can't keep up on it, particularly for the small number of people that would end up using it. Plus, you can't get those giant group plans when it's three people. And so that's only one small example of the sorts of things that make it hard. And, you know, the other thing that makes it hard is one of the big fights that they are having right now in the WGA, which I support, is they don't want to become part of the gig economy. They want to be, you know, working for the system, for the studios, and have actual jobs rather than being paid occasionally, big yeah. for hire, this sort of stuff. Yeah, they, they don't want to be Uber drivers. They don't want to be Uber drivers who write books or write screenplays. In our industry, that's what we are. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that. Yeah, we are already contract workers. Yes. And we have and they are, too, but under a very different sort of situation mm -hmm. that's been that way from the beginning. A lot of writers would work for studios, have studio deals, these sorts of things. Our industry for centuries, well, not centuries, but a century plus yeah. has worked in a certain way. And the momentum of the fact that we are all our own business owners mm -hmm. who license things would be almost insurmountable, I believe. Yeah. Part of the issue, I think, as well, is Hollywood, while it does have mm -hmm. an analog to indie publishing, yeah. it is not as big yeah. and it is not as powerful. Yep. And so, whereas you will occasionally hear stories about a big movie that mm -hmm. had legal or financial trouble because they were trying to give someone the wrong credit and then that ran afoul of one of these unions. That, yep. that happens occasionally. Sin City, I remember being a, a big deal yeah. at the time because yep. they wanted to- They wanted to put was Frank it? They, Miller put, on as director. As a director. And he isn't part of the, the, the ran afoul of the Director's Guild's rule. The Director's yeah. Guild's rules. Are, are even more arcane, I think, yes. than the Writer's Guild rules. Yes. But the point is, because of that issue, it wasn't able to get into certain distribution venues. It wasn't mm -hmm. able to get certain promotional things because of all of the contracts that everybody has with each other, the way the studios work yeah. with the distributors and with the theaters and so on and so on. And we don't really have that yeah. in publishing. And there isn't really a way we could build that. And so if we had a WGA, it mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily have any power because there wouldn't be as compelling an interest in being a part of it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really what it comes down to. Like, how could we even strike, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, there are not ongoing shows that no writers being part of is going to cripple mm -hmm. immediately. And, right, like, I go on strike. What? I'm not going to write for this time? Like, mm -hmm. 
than what happens. Like the, it's so distant what would happen. Striking is, and it's almost impossible because our books can still get you know purchased by the, yeah. the end user. I, I and... think it would be possible for authors to strike against certain distributors, yeah, but not as a whole against the publishing industry. SIFWA does an excellent job. This is science, science fiction, fiction writers of America. Writers of America. Technically, it's science fiction and fantasy writers of America. Yeah, there's an extra um, F in there. But regardless, they do a very good job for what they can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's uh, not Sifwa, a famously, uh, mm-hmm. they are still in the ongoing Disney Must Pay yeah. and battle. I believe that they've made big headways in Disney Must Pay. Yeah. So um, you can look that one up. It's bonkers. Disney mm-hmm. Must Pay. This is reduced to a level of simplicity that is probably no longer accurate. Basically, what Disney found is, as far as I'm aware, a legal loophole that allows them to purchase a company's assets without purchasing its liabilities. Something like that, Meaning that they have access to books people have written, Mm -hmm. and it was a Star Wars book where, where this came to light, without having the legal obligation to pay royalties to the author of that book. I think there are those, as I understand, that would argue they still do. Absolutely. That the loophole doesn't exist. Absolutely. But Disney claims there is one, and who's going to fight Disney? Well, mm-hmm. Sifwa fought Disney. Yeah, Sifwa's fighting Disney. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is, whether that is a false loophole that is being mm-hmm. used illegally, or yeah. whether it is just an immoral yet legal loophole that needs to change, Yeah. Either way, there is an organization fighting mm-hmm. to protect the authors. And so SIFWA does do some very good stuff. But I, I wish we could in some ways strike like I've talked about the audio mm-hmm. issue right now, which is one that I think is just enormous. And I really don't like a lot of Amazon's policies. They are hugely unfair to indie authors, just in ways that are mind-bogglingly predatory toward independent authors and there's really nothing that nothing that that can be done like you said we don't have ongoing shows Mm -hmm. you know what's a big show right now i don't even know i got a friend who works on lower decks star trek lower decks Mm -hmm. the writers are part of this strike Mm -hmm. they are striking there is the very real probability that they will not be able to produce the season they are currently working on my friend who's a director with lower decks is like we have some scripts, but mm-hmm. we can't really use them because yeah. we don't know if they, you know, if we have to change even one word of dialogue, then that's against the rules. And, and so we can't touch it. Mm-hmm. So striking in that case does put up significant barriers and mm-hmm. the studios could not feasibly bring in an entire new writing team to pick up in season four or five of an ongoing yeah. show and maintain the level of quality and consistency and accuracy. But we can't, for instance, be like, I'm on strike. Stop selling Stormlight Archive. Yeah. It's not how the contracts work. Well, and it's also like you could just say, I won't write any more Stormlight Archive until you do yeah. this. And then the publishers will just hire somebody else to write a different book, right? Yeah. They, or rather, they will contract somebody else to yeah. write a different book. And so because fiction tends to be less of a continuous thing and more of a you know, one person writing one book kind of yeah. situation, strikes don't work. I think, like I said, we could strike against a distributor. I think that it is potentially feasible if enough authors got together to say, hey, don't sell our books on Audible anymore. Yeah. Something might happen. That's possible. But again, it wouldn't be us. The publishers who mm-hmm. have the rights would have to say yeah. no, right? Like That's true. I, and even like... 
if indie authors got together and struck against Amazon's like KDP rules and things like that, boy, would it be hard to convince them, right? Like the thing about the WGA is, and these are the rules that I wish they didn't have to have, but if you are a company that is a WGA signatory, Mm -hmm. you actually have contracted to not hire anyone who is not in the WGA, right? Like you can't really hire scabs, not in the same way. Some Mm -hmm. shows can, but for the most part, you just couldn't even do that. You have a contract that says you won't do that, right? And if you are a member of the WGA, you are contractually obligated to strike when they strike. Now, like 90 something percent of people voted to strike. So, Mm -hmm. but that 5% that didn't or whatever, they have to strike. And if they scab, they'll be kicked out of the WGA and they would have to scab for a company that can't work with the WGA in the future, which means there's just no jobs for you, which, you know, like I said, I wish that didn't have to exist, right? Mm -hmm. It is stifling in a different way to some indie productions, some overseas productions and things like this, because you have to basically be a WGA signatory company. You have to be, say, yes, we'll work with you to do business in the town. Yeah. But- I can't imagine something like that for indie authors. No, I don't think it would work. I don't think it would work even for trad authors. Yeah. We are such a, like you said, we're already kind of gig economy contractors scratching and clawing for every crumb we can get. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've heard, and I am not enough of a Hollywood insider to know if this is true, is that while this is a strike that has been forced, pretty much everyone in the industry wants it. At every level, like it is a necessary market correction and they are using this strike as an excuse to make it happen and maybe save some face or something rather than just. Yeah, that's the hope from what I've heard from a lot of people like I've. Unlike the 2008 strike, which I wasn't as connected with Hollywood nearly Mm -hmm. like I barely even sold anything, but you heard different rhetoric and this time. All the insiders I know, even the people that this is affecting are like, yeah, this is coming. We're just going to have to deal with this. It's Mm -hmm. probably right that, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what they're fighting over, that why they're holding on, why they forced it to go to strike, but I guess maybe saving face. There is the whole AI issue, Mm -hmm. which I think is a tricky one because the WAGA wants to say no using AI to replace writers. Which, if I were the people in charge of the studios, I don't know that I could agree with because we don't know where AI will go. And if it becomes like industry standard in other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. suddenly, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Is it going to hurt our industry Mm -hmm. to have artisanal handmade scripts compared to, say, Bollywood or Hong Kong? Yep. If they embrace AI scripts in a way that becomes incredibly successful and yeah. and I do not I think no handwritten scripts are going anywhere. We've talked a lot about AI, yeah. not in the the mm-hmm. near or mid distant future. Yeah. But I also don't know that I could sign saying we won't use this technology that is a brand new emerging technology that is really. But I don't mm-hmm. think that's a main point. I think yeah. it's one that I, I, a lot I think of it's people, a side thing. Yeah. It's worth pointing out. Mm-hmm. You know, since we did our AI episodes. Yeah, uh, a few months ago, mm-hmm. the technology continues to progress mm-hmm. and our understanding of its current capabilities has changed. It has become very clear that they are incredibly good at doing basic level stuff and incredibly bad past a certain level. 
unless you have a really skilled user who is capable of giving very specific direction to the AI, and they can get things that emerge that are much better. Mm -hmm. And so there's a really good argument for, yes, I created this art. If you are a very skilled user who knows how to give the exact prompts and things like this, it's using a tool just like a Photoshop filter. That argument is a really good argument. It is. If we look at it as a tool that a human Mm. will use. Yeah a skilled and artistic human, mm-hmm. then yeah, in that sense, AI might be an instrument, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's replacing a human voice, but the person producing music with it is yeah. every bit as talented as a singer. Dr. Wells. Dr. Sanderson. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, honorary Dr. Wells. Honorary Dr. Sanderson. Slightly it's... less honorary Dr. Sanderson. <laughs> It is a pleasure having done this podcast with you. Yes. This is us signing off for beginning our year two finale, right? This is like yes. our last normal episode. This is our last normal one. Yeah. Next one will be the year two finale. The year two finale where we go over our brackets. Mm-hmm. And then will we next week have something they can vote on or do we just go over the brackets in the uh, week after? I, I, I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. Okay. So you have to tune in next week and find out. Okay. And then the week after that, when we start year three, now that we're both honorary doctors, we're going to do this podcast exclusively in tuxedos and monocles and top hats. That's right. That's right. Just like real academics. How's that, Ben? (laughs) 